Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So my friend Marty and I ran into each other on the sidewalk the other day while walking our dogs, and we got to talking about rocks, specifically the splendid rock collection of the Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue. Since construction began on the building in 1922, the Trib has asked its reporters to gather stones from significant buildings or places around the world. So, as you know better than I do, masoned into the walls of the Trib Tower are stones or bricks or gargoyles from the Taj Mahal, the Great Pyramid, the Great Wall of China, Independence Hall, Abraham Lincoln's tomb, Abraham Lincoln's house, There's a piece of petrified wood from Redwoods National Forest and a twisted piece of steel from the World Trade Center. Once there was a moon rock, but it's gone now. Only NASA apparently can own moon rocks, so it must have been alone. So that when Dr. Hodgson built our own cloister walk here and decided to punctuate those arches, with stones from significant places in the history of Christianity, he must have got the idea from the Trib Tower. Our collection is much more modest than theirs. We have 12 stones. They have 149. But two stones are common to both collections, and if you can guess what they are without looking it up, I will buy you dinner for two at the venue of your choice. Local church historian Sally Campbell says that a stroll through our cloister walk is like taking a walk through the history of Christianity. And that sounded like a good sermon series to me. So, today I come to what I think of as the most eccentric and unexpected and obscure of our 12 rocks. Perhaps some of you have been to Solomon's Quarry, a subterranean cave that stretches for about five city blocks beneath the old city of Jerusalem. It's about 600 feet long and 300 feet wide, 30 feet below street level. And over the centuries, rulers from King Herod during the time of Jesus to Suleiman the Magnificent in the 16th century have built city walls and temples and palaces from the Melek limestone quarried from its depths. If you've been to Jerusalem, you have visited the western or the Wailing Wall. Herod took the limestone blocks for the western wall from the cave we now know as Solomon's Quarry. Now, you never want to get your geology from a preacher, but apparently millions of years ago, a warm, shallow sea covered Palestine so that over the eons, these limestone layers built up from the crushed, lime-hardened, and congealed seashells of extinct marine creatures. And since the limestone is so nicely layered, it's easy to cut into slabs and blocks and to build stuff with it. There's no historical evidence to authenticate this, but legend has it that King Solomon used this quarry beneath the streets of Jerusalem to build the first and finest and most magnificent of the three temples that have stood on that site over the centuries. Thus, this cave is called Solomon's Quarry. That's not verifiable, but it is possible. 
Now, for those of you who skipped too many Sunday school classes in your childhood, Solomon was scion and successor to King David and by far the most successful king in Hebrew history. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus and we think he started building his temple around the year 970 B.C. He reigned for 40 years, all of them peaceful, and turned a nation the size of Vermont into a world superpower in the 10th century B.C. His kingdom stretched from the Euphrates in the northeast to Egypt in the southwest. And after he died, the land shrunk back to a tiny fraction of what it it had been during his lifetime. He had 40,000 horses and 1,400 chariots. And sandwiched into a strategic geography on a major trade route, made a fortune trading chariots, the ancient equivalent of F-14s, and exotic goods like peacocks and chimpanzees with the powers of Africa and Arabia. I am not making this up. It's in the Bible. With 700 wives and 300 concubines, Solomon had the legendary libido of a Lothario. (laughs) Now, with a harem like that, I can't imagine how many children Solomon fathered, but I shudder to think of the tuition costs. The IQ scale hadn't been invented yet during Solomon's day, but in any case, it would have been useless because Solomon was off the charts. His wisdom was legendary. Over the centuries, as many as three books from the Hebrew Bible have been attributed to King Solomon. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, of course, the Song of Solomon. Now, those attributions are dubious, but you see how much respect Hebrew history has paid to King Solomon over the centuries. Everything about him was loud, large, fast, and vivid. And yet, for all his exploits, the achievement the Bible cares most about is his magnificent temple. The biblical historian spends hundreds of words describing in intricate and loving detail what this temple looked like. I compressed the whole thing into a tiny fraction of what the Bible tells us about the temple. It was about 150 feet long, 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, five stories tall, which would be just a little bigger than the footprint of our entire property here, including the manse and the memorial garden, maybe a little larger, much taller than our steeple. And I love the little detail from the story that tells us that they cut the blocks to size and spec, not on the temple site, but in the quarry itself, so that, says the Bible, neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron could be heard in the temple when it was being built. No reason to annoy the Almighty with the clash and clatter of construction cacophony. Every surface was covered with expensive cedar and with precious metals. The Bible tells us that Solomon used 3,700 tons of gold and 33,000 tons of silver to coat the temple with precious metal, which means that by contemporary precious metal valuations, before labor and land costs, the temple would be worth, now get this, $180 billion. Today, the most expensive building on earth costs $6 billion to build. The recently completed One World Trade Center is about $3.8 billion. So you can see that the Bible is exaggerating a little bit, but you can see why they're using all of this loving detail 
and extensive hyperbole and pride in the house they're building for God. It's because they want to say, God is so great and God's house is so important, we will spare no expense in its construction. And this has been true ever since Solomon's first temple. Have you noticed that in every city of every land, on every continent, in every age, the places of worship are the most interesting and distinctive and beautiful. This is truest in Rome, but also true of Paris and Tokyo and New York and Winnetka. Until a couple of days ago, it was true in Kathmandu. And after the loss of life, one of the saddest things about that earthquake is the loss of all that religious and cultural heritage. I'm not unbiased on this point, but I think this is as it should be. Someone put it like this. A church building is not just a place to worship in. It's a place to worship with. Yes? This is one of the aspects of our worship of God Solomon got this right, and so have people of faith through the ages. Churches are places to exhibit and celebrate the beauty of God, God's, the wonder, the mystery, the glory of the creator of all the flying worlds and burning suns. Solomon's temple was a sermon in stone, and so is our humbler chapel here, a sermon in stone. The great thing about a sermon in stone is that it preaches 24-7. It goes on proclaiming the beauty of God even when no one's inside. And it proclaims this good news that the Creator is not very far from us and that she is very beautiful. That's why Edward the Confessor threw up those soaring arches of Westminster Abbey almost a thousand years ago. Nobody knows how he did it, but he did. It's why the glass at Chartres is not clear but kaleidoscopic and narrative. Even the windows are enlisted in the telling of the most glorious story ever told. It's why Bach wrote his B minor mass and Handel his splendid oratorios and Brahms and Mozart their requiems. It's why Rembrandt painted the life of Christ and Van Gogh those starry, starry nights. Do you know why Russia is an Eastern Orthodox land and has been for a thousand years? I didn't know this story. Maybe you did. But apparently in the year 988, about a thousand years ago, Vladimir I of Kiev studied Judaism, Roman Catholicism, and Islam before making Eastern Orthodoxy the religion of his land. He sent emissaries to Jerusalem, Rome, Mecca, and Constantinople before making his choice and landed finally on Greek Orthodoxy because it was the most beautiful. Do you have Greek or Russian friends? Are you Greek or Russian yourself? If so, you know that in Eastern Orthodoxy, they believe that well-imagined and well-crafted pieces of human art are carriers of divinity. They participate. These Icons of orthodoxy participate in the holiness of God. They are holy relics. They are transmitters of divinity. 
And so before Vladimir chose his own faith and the faith of his land, he sent ambassadors to visit Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. And when they returned, they reported, we went to the Greeks and the Greeks led us to edifices where they worshiped their God and we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. For on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty and we are at a loss to describe it. We only knew that God dwells, dwells there among human beings. And so because of these beautiful, well-crafted things, Russia has been orthodox for a thousand years. We knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. Now, maybe the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greeks, got this right because of the influence of Plato's philosophy. Do you remember Plato from college philosophy courses? Remember how he always talked about that great trinity of highest virtues, the beautiful, the good, and the true? And it was always in that order, the beautiful, the good, and the true. They were intrinsically related, inextricably related. Plato thought that earthly beauty came from the splendor of the one shining through the many. A man's spirit, even his character, is uplifted by the sight of, for instance, a majestic oak tree, because the tree participates in the glory and beauty of its origin, its creator. And when we see a beautiful oak tree or a rose or the vista of the ocean, we are remembering where we came from and where we're returning to. They say that near the end of his life, Harry Truman would take a walk every morning, sometimes with his friend Thomas Melton, a minister. And sometimes their path would take them past an enormous ginkgo tree. And sometimes Mr. Truman would stop and talk to the tree. A while later, long after Mr. Truman was gone, they asked his friend, the Reverend Melton, what Mr. Truman said to the tree every morning. And the Reverend Melton said, Mr. Truman always told the tree, you're doing a good job. Doing a good job at what? A good job of communicating divinity to me. A good job of reminding me where you came from and where I came from. It works on us almost as a sense of nostalgia. We remember where we came from. So, maybe that's why this stone from Solomon's quarry is in our cloister walk. It summons us to spend an hour every seventh day in the beauty of holiness near the heart of God, our origin and our destiny. It reminds us where we came from and where we're going. And it summons us to a life that is good and true because our origin is so beautiful. Most of us, after all, spend most of our time in Target or Walmart or in the purgatory of the DMV or in sleek but sterile glass and steel skyscrapers or in the fuselage of a 737 or in a drab metro train car or flying down an expressway where you think to yourself, Joni Mitchell was right. They paved 
paradise and put up a parking lot. They took all the trees and put them in a tree museum and they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. In Baltimore this week, the state attorney charged a police officer with depraved heart murder. That is to say, she accused him not of bad intention. She faulted him for his indifference. He's probably not a bad person, but he forgot, maybe for just a moment, how precious and singular every human life is. He had probably seen so many bad things and been treated so poorly that he forgot. And so we all need a reminder of that beauty east of the sun and west of the moon that lies beneath, above, behind, and within the whole leaping, flying, diving, swarming zoo of creation. A place like this, which coaxes out of us a silent but earnest prayer. Thank you, God, for this beautiful day. Life is gift and birth windfall. And just to be here at all is sheer, extravagant, unmerited privilege. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.